2: Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all to the 17th century warfare series, episode 13. Last time we dropped some interesting bombs on you guys, as we got to the bottom of how the Habsburgs managed to transform their control over their hereditary lands, not just to make absolutist rule easier, but also to make raising an army in the name of the Holy Roman Emperor easier as well. This latter point in particular interested us, Because it meant that, upon the end of the conflict in 1648, Ferdinand III, the Emperor, was not as restricted as his father had been when it came to making war in the Austrian Habsburg name. There would be no independent contractors, no mercenary captains stealing potential recruits, and most importantly of all, no annoying opposition from the assemblies of Austria or Bohemia would be able to halt the recruitment drives in the future. From now on, the power to raise an army would be in the Emperor's hands, and thanks to the presence of Wallenstein's hulking force when these rulings were originally adopted, the trampling upon centuries worth of traditions and privileges was accomplished with surprisingly little fuss or bloodshed. It could almost have seemed like an afterthought, and it is entirely likely that Wallenstein did not approve, since he was wholly against the Edict of Restitution, which was passed around the same time in 1629. Yet as a loyal soldier, Wallenstein aided his emperor's quest for greater powers and control over his lands, with the result that by Ferdinand II's death in 1637, he had left the Habsburg family in an unparalleled position in its hereditary lands, and ready to carry the fight to its enemies for the final stretch of the conflict. In such a way did massively significant watershed moments come to pass, almost unnoticed by his rivals, and mostly unmourned at home by those subjects who were, in fact, the most affected. Such an achievement by the late Emperor Ferdinand was, as we understood it, a product of the desperate times in which the Hausburg family lived. The Hausbergs needed men and she needed them now, all year round, without exceptions or petty privileges, getting in the way of her security. It is, of course, remarkable that Ferdinand managed to bring these changes to pass, but as we have noted, this was but one aspect of the 17th century's history of warfare which made the time period so uniquely weighted and important. We're going to switch gears a bit in this episode and focus on two case studies, rather than just one as we did before, to demonstrate the difficulty that besiegers faced during wartime as well as the occasion when the advantage could be with the defender. First, we'll travel to a pretty much unknown siege, that being the siege on the island of Rey off the west coast of France undertaken by the English in 1627. Second, we'll return to where it all began in north Italy, and assess how Mantua's fortifications during its long-winded war of succession granted its dukes some significant opportunities between 1611 to 1631 to resist their enemies. All in all, this episode will bring us up to speed with the pros and cons of the siege for both attacker and defender, and it should provide good context for lesser-known theatres of war like the Anglo-French War of the late 1620s or the Mantuan War Succession around the same period. The Thirty Years' War, as we surely know by this point was not made up of glorious pitched battles that have become so famous today. Most of the success, most of the progress made on either side, was accomplished through sieges. The usual ingredients for a successful defence or offence applied, of course. But there were some occasions, such as those that we'll examine here, that stand out for particularly significant reasons. So, with the Isle of Ray and Mantua in our minds, I hope you're ready to sink your teeth into this siege episode. I will now take you to 1627. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by three different things, three very interesting different things, but I'll run through them as quickly as possible. First of all, you should know that we've declared war, a podcast war that is, because we're super super belligerent, we've declared a podcast war upon BT Newberg's new podcast, A History of Sex, which we advertised in two weeks ago in the last episode of this series, If you think it sounds a bit controversial to you, don't be put off by the very weighted title. Because he doesn't just examine the straightforward concept of, you know, sex, that big S word. He also looks at how that was conceived of in different cultures and countries. At the moment, he's looking through the Third Reich and their experience of that often taboo topic. And trusts the Nazis, of course, to take things to the next level of horrendous and weird but it all makes for very fascinating listening. So click on the link in the description below if you want to listen to more of that. The second thing you should know is that us people in the Agora Podcast Network want to hear from you. So please click on the link in the description below. Yes, there's a lot of links in the description below, but you should click on that. Because by fulfilling that very short survey, you will be helping us reach you with better content, better advertisers and just better stuff in general. It literally takes three minutes. I did it myself and I was able to do it in pretty much 60 seconds, but I wasn't exactly giving them essays for answers. And you don't need to, pretty much it's just tick the box and move on. We really would appreciate it, and feedback like this really helps the Agora Podcast Network grow. And I know it's a pain to have to fill out a survey, but hopefully you'll take a few seconds of your time to actually do it, and thereupon we will all be improved as a result. The final thing I want to talk to you about is quite exciting. It's the History Podcasting Platform, which you can find by going to wdfpodcast.com forward slash history hyphen podcasting hyphen platform. It's really simple to find it. Just click on the link in the description below. Wow, I bet you didn't see me saying that for the third time in this episode. What is the History Podcasting Platform? Well, if you are a budding history podcaster, maybe you haven't started yet, but maybe you're interested in jumping on board then first of all, congratulations. It's a very exciting step to take and I'd be very happy to welcome you. But you might find the whole process a bit intimidating. And the HPP is where you should go when you're just starting out. At the core of the HPP is several blog posts, which will pretty much just introduce you to the rough and tumble aspects of approaching history podcasting with the right mindset. And while you're doing history podcasting, having the right mindset and having the right level of morale and priorities and that kind of thing. There's a good bit of information there as well, including how to reference, if you're not sure about that, and how exactly you're going to go about things like websites and iTunes and that kind of thing. There's more information to come, and hopefully in the future I'll be releasing blog posts on such concepts as What is the best podcast format for you? In other words, should you do a history of podcast or should you just do a random jumping about podcast like When Diplomacy Fails is? I have big plans for the HPP in the future and it's part of my vision to make history podcasting more accessible and more of a possibility for enthusiasts because, as I feel very strongly about, the most enthusiastic people become the best history podcasters. The cream rises to the top... And if I play a role in helping you become a history podcaster, then that is all the better for it. It doesn't cost you anything, I don't get anything from it financially, but I do feel very warm and fuzzy inside when a new history podcaster joins our esteemed ranks. And it is very esteemed, so check out the HPP if you're interested, or maybe you've been podcasting for a while and you want some extra tips. It's all there, just click on the link in the description below. Alrighty guys. Sorry for besieging you with those little plugs, but now let's examine what sieges were actually like. So we have learned that the military revolution didn't concern just the transformation of tactics used by soldiers, it also affected the state's relationship with the army and the design of fortresses which could be used to reinforce the government's authority and defend it against attackers. The Trace Italienne, if you'll remember that redesign of how to make fortresses and how to attack them as well, was a revolution in itself. Castles were replaced with squat fortresses, boasting interlocking bastions and thick low walls with emplaced guns, which forced the attacker to bring more men to the action. Sieges were a profoundly important feature of the Thirty Years' War, as I'm sure we're all aware, and while pitched battles do receive more attention... In fact, it's more likely that you know of the names of pitched battles. So, Breitenfeld, White Mountain, Wittstock, 2nd Breitenfeld, Rocroi, etc. etc. It's more likely you know those names than famous sieges. But pitched battles, as they came around, were actually quite rare. And certainly it was through the capture or the continued defence of important bastions that the national interest was expanded or preserved, and great watershed moments were solidified. Considering this, it is worthwhile to examine two cases of sieges in the duration of the Thirty Years War, both of which remain generally unknown, being outside the scope of the general being outside the scope of the central Thirty Years War narrative, and taking place within a few years of each other. The first is the Siege of St. Martin on the Isle of Ray, just off the coast of the more famous French fortress of La Rochelle, which was besieged by an English expeditionary force without success in 1627. The second case study is the Siege of Mantua, which was conducted on and off between 1628-1630 to 1630 as part of the War for the Mantuan Succession. In the former case, on the Isle of Ray, We'll focus our attention upon the lot of the besiegers, while for the latter case in Mantua, we'll look at the fate of the besieged. An examination of these two cases with very different fates and from very different perspectives will contribute to the general picture of the Thirty Years' War by the end of its first decade. It will also serve as a good introduction to the challenges which siegecraft presented to each side. We begin our examination with the virtually unknown English siege of Ray. The siege on the Isle of Ray was conducted for three months over the summer of 1627, and was directed by the Duke of Buckingham, Charles I's ill-fated favourite. The siege was significant as one of the few occasions where England committed to an independent military action during the Thirty Years' War. If you're a bit confused as to why the English and the French are at each other's throats in the late 1620s, when surely on paper they should be technical allies then you're not alone in wondering what exactly the heck is going on. You see, unfortunately for those beleaguered Protestants looking on from the continent, and indeed for the Danish king whom King Charles had promised to support, the English axe was not swung at the Habsburg enemy, instead it was swung at France. And even then, the war seemed to be religiously rather than politically motivated, launched in support of French Protestants or Huguenots, who were then buckling under pressure from Cardinal Richelieu's regime. It was Sir George Clarke who wrote in 1958 that if the Siege of Ray had succeeded, we would never have heard of Oliver Cromwell. Clarke's point was that the mostly unknown Siege of Ray heaped so much shame and scorn upon the Duke of Buckingham following his failure in summer 1627 that once Buckingham was assassinated in 1628, King Charles I's regime began its march towards collapse. Now, we're not here to discuss the accuracy of this statement, but it does remind us that sieges can sometimes have far-reaching consequences regardless of their location or result. Ray was an island fortress located nearby La Rochelle, which is a much more famous Huguenot stronghold, and the importance of this little island was therefore clear. If the island of Ré could be seized, then subsequent English operations in aid of the French Protestants in La Rochelle would be far easier to successfully undertake. With a base along the coast of western France touching into the turbulent Bay of Biscay, English operations would theoretically be easier to supply and reinforce against any French reprisals. In this respect, the plan for seizing the Isle of Ré made sense. The Sandy Island had only been seized by the French government in 1625, So it was conceivable that it wouldn't be overtly taxing to take this island back in the name of the rebellious French Protestant Huguenots who had fought a civil war against King Louis XIII's government on and off since 1621. That this civil war ended in 1628 with the fall of La Rochelle should tell us all we need to know about how successful the Isle of Ray expedition was going to be. But there was more to this civil war than just La Rochelle and its operations By concluding this conflict, profound implications were in store for Richelieu and his regime. Richelieu was able to work afterwards to reassert royal authority in Huguenot regions, while he also dealt with the king's mother, and he forged a stable foreign policy, the act which he is most famous for, based less on religious persuasion, and more on the political interests of France vis-à-vis its Habsburg rival in Spain and Austria. In 1627, though, the prospects for success in Richelieu's case remained tantalisingly out of reach. English foreign policy was focused on the maintenance of the Huguenots in France and the eventual destruction of this fifth column by the French government was by no means assured because of this foreign involvement. It must have been immensely frustrating for those Protestants looking on, both in England and on the continent, to see that the English would rather expend their resources and energies in a fruitless siege of the Isle of Ray in support of people who really were only going to undermine the French government and thus undermine the anti habsburg resistance. In the tangled and interconnected web of alliances and agreements which the Thirty Years' War represented, nothing was ever so straightforward as a case of Catholic versus Protestant. And this is, this Isle of Ray expedition, is a great example of that. The historian S. J. Stearns provides us with a good sketch of the Isle of Ray, where English troops would have to land, and thus continue this trend of further entangling and muddying the waters of the Thirty Years' War. Stearns wrote The small, sandy, irregularly shaped island on the Biscay coast commanded the harbour of Rochelle, which had been for a long time one of the major Protestant strongholds in the intermittent 60-year religious war in France. By seizing the island, recently garrisoned by French royal troops, the British could, without making a major military effort themselves, encourage the Huguenots to resume their revolt against their Catholic king, while they raided the rich commerce of Bordeaux to the south. With this goal in mind, a fleet of 115 ships with 6,000 soldiers on board set sail for this sandy island in late June 1627 and upon landing on the 12th of July, engaged with the French troops on the ground, forcing them to take refuge in St. Martin's Citadel on the island's centre. This fortress enabled the French soldiery to retain their hold over the island and keep a watchful eye on the more important fortress of La Rochelle nearby, which was zealously guarded by the aforementioned Huguenots. English belief had it that if the Isle of Ré could be seized, then the Huguenots would be so encouraged by the setback of the French government that they would increase their opposition and the civil war would spread further across the country. Yet this newly built citadel of St. Martins was to frustrate all of these high-minded goals. Though it was not completely finished, building having only begun the previous year, St. Martin's was strategically and tactically well thought out. The fortress had its back to the sea, with a deep moat on the remaining three sides, and it boasted high walls, which went against the grain of regular fortress construction at the time. But these high walls served their purpose, because they enabled the defending French garrison to pour down a hail of fire onto the besieging English, who were stuck behind the moat, and to maintain an effective panorama of the English siege works, which were quite minimal, owing to a lack of preparation and resources. Indeed, judging by the preparations and rhetoric which surrounded the expedition, you get the feeling that the English never really expected to have to engage in a siege in the first place. The campaign had been characterised by Buckingham in the months before as a brilliantly unexpected skirmish designed to hamper the French encirclement of La Rochelle and encourage the Huguenots without too much expenditure of resources. But what the English army and government was to get instead was a costly protracted siege on a sandy little island. And thanks to the abundance of French royalists on the mainland and the low yields of rays surrounding sandy lands, the only way for Buckingham's force to receive supplies and reinforcement was by sea, following a journey of several weeks and through the very turbulent Bay of Biscay. As S.J. Stearns continued the logistical dilemma was as straightforward as it was intractable. To assault St. Martin, even after it had been weakened by siege and artillery bombardment, reinforcements would be needed for the conventional wisdom called for the attackers to have an advantage of at least three, if not four to one. As the size of the besieging force increased, however, so would the supply problem. How could enough men be put into the field to win the objective without outstripping the capacity to maintain them there during the time required. It was a logistical problem of classical simplicity. The solution was infinitely complex. So what had begun as a nice little diversion and a chance to easily gain some kind of victory in this French civil war and help some French Huguenots along the way became an impossible mission. And much lament was poured on Buckingham for not planning ahead or even researching the case to see whether or not the French had some kind of fortifications on the Isle of Ray in the first place. Surely he should have at least known that they held this citadel on the Isle of Ray. The channel in between the Isle of Ray and the French mainland was narrow enough, at four kilometres, that small boats would be able to slip through the English naval blockade of the fortress and resupply the French garrison. Meanwhile, in the English camp, reinforcements arrived from Ireland and Scotland, but these men arrived without their rations, and the original fleet, which had set sail in late June, had done so with only half the rations normally provided, since the expectation was of a short campaign, and certainly not of a siege. Having committed to this action, though, Buckingham would have to go the whole hog, and pour more and more men into the barren island, as they tightened the chokehold on St. Martin's Citadel. Before the reinforcements had even arrived, between sailors and soldiers, the English had 10,000 men to supply, with the expectation that this would swell to as much as 17,000 by the end of the summer, perhaps even more. Providing for a force of this large and such a desolate place would have been a challenge, even had the siege taken place on England's doorstep but because the siege could only be resupplied over hundreds of miles of open water, the challenge was still more severe and the prospects of success dwindled with each passing day. Not only were the men engaging in a siege, they were also fighting against the garrison and they were incurring casualties at a rate of between 45 to 60 men a day, figures which were exacerbated by disease and starvation as the problem of provisions became increasingly acute. After a generation of peace, the Stuart monarchy was also ill.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
2: Equipped mentally and administratively for any lasting campaign, shortages in beer and in bread, the staple rations of a besieging army were felt almost immediately and there remained a lack of practical experience in England when it came to undertaking a siege, as the Spanish or Dutch had had from their many years of conflict. The requirements were underestimated, and notwithstanding Buckingham's boundless optimism, even he was aware that the siege would be in trouble before long if matters were not resolved. Resolving them was easier said than done, though, especially when the needs of the soldiery were repeatedly misunderstood and the ships inconsistently sent from home. There seems to have been the expectation within the upper levels of English government that the old rations left over from 1625 would be sufficient to cover at least half of the requirements of 1627. This despite the fact that reports on the ground, which had plainly been ignored, had complained at the time in another campaign in 1625 that the rations even at that stage were rotten and insufficient and that they even stank out the cargo holds in which they had been stored. A lack of money at home only added to these problems and even with the reinforcements from Ireland and Scotland, Buckingham was not confident of success if the fortress was to be successfully stormed. The gradually dwindling French defenders were not being reduced quickly enough, and the conditions on the seas were getting increasingly more treacherous as summer progressed, so that it was doubtful the increasing demands of the besiegers could be met in time. Buckingham's letters home became more panicked and downcast as a result, and he urged a more effective channeling of funds and resources to this garrison, but in vain. As the stately system of supply began to fray at the seams with its own inadequacy, Buckingham was forced to rely on less scrupulous suppliers and contractors who were happy to take the limited funds he did possess and to promise great things, but proved ineffective at actually delivering the much-needed foodstuffs, the munitions, or, of course, the beer. In early October 1627, a contract was concluded with a circle of untrustworthy fellows to supply the necessary rations for 12,000 men for four weeks. This eased Buckingham's concerns for a time, but when the goods arrived in a state of complete disorder, rot and pollution, Buckingham knew deep down that the siege was doomed. No proper accounts had been taken of what was even being delivered, and since no bills of lading were filled out, it was a mystery what was even on each of these ships. Buckingham also found that a great deal of his suppliers didn't even speak English, which only added to the disaster. By mid-October, discussions about ending the siege became increasingly bitter, But Buckingham refused to accept this truth for the moment, and he certainly refused to accept responsibility, arguing that he had been let down by London, which was partially true, but it was also true that the actual machinery was not in place for the siege which Buckingham had not expected, and which certainly was his fault. In desperation did Buckingham follow through with a recommendation sent via the Huguenots at La Rochelle, a few kilometres away, to the effect that St. Martin's was now vulnerable to assault after the protracted siege. With this idea in his head, on the 14th of October, Buckingham gathered the men available to him, which amounted to just 4,000 effectives after so many months of starvation and inaction, and he ordered a frontal assault to be made on the fortress in miserable conditions, which turned the area around the citadel into a quagmire of mud and sticky death traps, which more French firepower could be focused. Hopelessly outclassed and outmatched, Buckingham then agreed to call off the siege and watched with further dismay as French troops, perhaps sensing the British weakness, were landed on the island. This added to the urgency now to withdraw and it completed the picture of an ineffectual English action. Buckingham could neither organise a successful offensive nor arrange for a safe evacuation when the tide turned. All in all, this mostly unknown siege of Ray, launched by Buckingham and carrying his name and reputation, cost the British Crown perhaps as much as £250,000 and it seemed in addition to have cost Buckingham his life. Reports were surprisingly easy to come by on the ongoing siege so that the public was quite well informed of the humiliating disaster unfolding some distance away. This was far, very far indeed, from the legendary English military prowess so revered by folk legends and national histories of the time. Instead, it was a messy, uninspired and unrewarding campaign characterised by all the mistakes seasoned siege experts normally avoided. In the last analysis, wrote the historian S.J. Stearns, After allowing due weight to domestic political difficulties with their considerable impact on war finance and to policy and command errors, Diplomatic, strategic and tactical, the defeat on the Isle of Ray was fundamentally the consequence of trying to wage a campaign that was too large, too complex and too costly for the British administration to support logistically. So the Siege of Ray was a stinking failure and an absolute disaster for the British government and effectively meant that the English didn't really do anything else in the Thirty Years' War aside from that little limp effort. But after having seen the difficulties faced by the besieger, now we're going to turn our attentions to the advantages that the defender possessed, specifically by examining the fortifications of the Duke of Mantua in North Italy. Now I know it can be a bit jarring to switch so completely from one case study to another, so let's investigate with some context on the situation in the Italian patchwork of states and loyalties first. The Gonzaga Dukes of Mantua died out in 1627, and this initiated the War of Mantuan Succession between France and Spain, which was in actuality a proxy war, and a final step towards the open breach between the two crowns in 1635. In the conflict, in the War of the Mantuan Succession, the French candidate to replace the Gonzaga Duke, the Duke of Nevers, was Victorious This is generally where the story is left in the historiography of the Thirty Years' War. However, in our case, it is useful to look in more detail at the system of fortifications which these Mantuan dukes maintained, to get a better appreciation for such fortifications, not just for the importance they held in northern Italian political and strategic considerations, but also for what these fortifications can tell us about the challenges which even the most powerful armies faced when up against zealous, well-positioned and experienced defenders. From 1530, the Gonzaga Dukes of Mantua began investing their monies into raising the newly developed angular bastions and thick low walls which had become the staple features of the Trace Italienne. Since Mantua was located in virtually the centre of North Italy, it was only natural that the influences and innovations of the Trace Italienne should reach her leaders. Money permitting, these dukes began adding several formidable new layers to the already impressive natural defences of Mantua, which included the existence of natural lakes on three sides of the city, owing to the course of the river Mincio which flowed nearby. You may not have heard of Mantua, but after beefing up the defences of this Italian city-state and its surrounding lands to such a remarkable extent, one historian believed that Mantua became one of the strongest sites in all of Europe. Thanks in large part to Mantua's integral position along the Spanish road and the surviving Gonzaga's brothers' lack of heirs by the 1620s, it was clear that these fortifications would soon be put to their ultimate test as the interested parties battled over control of them. The Duchy of Mantua included both Mantua itself and a fortress owned and maintained by its Duke at Casal, In the nearby Duchy of Montferrat, which were believed to be so formidable that Madrid greatly feared the implications of a French garrison arriving in the region to reinforce the interests of the independent Mantua dukes against those of the Habsburgs. Mantua and Montferrat, if sufficiently reinforced, could anchor a Bourbon defence in the centre of North Italy's Po Valley and enable the French to directly threaten Milan, Turin, Genoa, Bologna and even Venice. Yet it was also possible that French power, if resurgent in the region, would unite these cities and duchies against the Spanish and block the Spanish road which ran through the region, above all through the critical Habsburg satellite state of Milan. In 1590, as if anticipating these looming challenges which his patrimony presented, the Duke of Mantua transformed Casale into the most impregnable bastion in Europe, by constructing a brand new six-sided citadel in the centre of the city. Whatever came his way in the next few decades, he was confident that the twin fortresses of Mantua and Casal would be sufficient to withstand it. Nearly 40 years later, all involved would deal with the horrendous consequences of these incredible feats of engineering. Well defended and safe behind walls he may well have been, but the Gonzaga Dukes were quickly learning that the succession was much more difficult to protect. Between 1613-20, to 20, as the three remaining Gonzaga brothers struggled with the consequences of their lack of heirs and unwise secret marriages, the Duke of Savoy attempted to move forward with his distant claim to the Gonzaga House's Mantuan and Manferat possessions. The Duke of Savoy possessed grand ambitions by this point to not merely seize this portion of North Italy for himself, but also to swing south and seize Genoa, thereby crafting in the Po Valley a position of unparalleled dominance over Italian affairs and, hopefully, free from either Spanish or French interference. Savoy appreciated that the fortifications of Casal and Mantua were the keys to his security and success, but his tenuous claim on the succession and his reluctance to actually besiege these fortresses came against him when a more viable candidate for the duchies, the Duke of Nevers, emerged. Nevers had a Gonzaga father and a French noblewoman for a mother, and immediately he set about pressing his claim in the mid-1620s to the chagrin not only of Savoy, but also of Spain, who soon cooperated together to forestall this greater threat to their interests. As a Spanish Savoyard army moved to invade Montferrat and besiege Casal, a siege which began in mid-May 1628, the Duke of Nevers made his way to Mantua. A soldier by trade, the Duke of Nevers refused to accept the demands of either the King of Spain or the more distracted pleas of the Holy Roman Emperor, who was then preoccupied by another siege, that of Stralsund, to the far north along the shores of the Baltic. Here we see an example of the stunningly interconnected nature of Europe in 1628. By this point, the Emperor's forces were engaged in the Siege of Stralsund, the French were engaged with the Siege of La Rochelle, and the Spanish Savoyard forces were engaged with the Siege of Casale. Whichever one of these sieges was successful first, or whichever one was abandoned first, great ripples would be felt elsewhere. If Stralsund fell, the Emperor would be able to engage in his Baltic design and put increased pressure upon the Dutch at sea in league with Spain. If La Rochelle fell, then the French would be able to divert resources and men from their civil war to Italy, potentially turning the balance in North Italy in France's favour. If Cassal fell, then the Duke of Nevers would surely be forced to accept these Spanish Savoyard demands and bend his knee to the Habsburgs. This moment provides as clear an indication as any that sieges played a pivotal role in the course of the Thirty Years' War. We are also reminded, and we will investigate this in more detail later, of the fact that the Thirty Years' War caused several related, and in many cases undeclared wars, to erupt throughout its duration. One such undeclared war was that which waged between the Spanish and French in North Italy over the Mantuan succession, and actually dragged Habsburg resources away from other critical fronts as a result. In the event, as we know, the Habsburg efforts to plug the gaps were in vain. La Rochelle fell to the French crown in October 1628, and Cardinal Richelieu wasted no time redirecting the required forces to their new destination, Savoy. In Richelieu's mind, it made tactical and logistical sense to attack the weak link in the Spanish-Savoyard alliance by going straight for the heart of Savoy. French forces smashed those of Savoy in the Battle of Souza Pass in March 1629 and a peace with the Duke of Savoy was signed later in the month. As per the terms of the treaty, Savoy had to recognise the Duke of Nevers as the rightful Duke of Mantua and Montferrat, but this peace did not last when Spain refused to accept it and drafted veterans from the Netherlands to take the fight to Casal again. Among their number of these veterans was the extremely experienced and renowned Genoese commander and loyal servant of Spain, Ambrogio Spinola, then in the final throes of his service. After its ally displayed such clear determination to continue the war, Savoy felt it had no choice. In 1630, Savoy returned to the fray on Spain's side. Casal continued to resist throughout 1630 though, enduring a siege lasting nearly six months, but... Mantua did succumb to a siege, led by the Emperor's troops in July 1630. But this success on the Emperor's side was probably only because the city's population had been utterly decimated by a plague, which was then ravaging North Italy. Mantua was finally in Habsburg hands, but the victory was bittersweet. Because Casal had held on in 1630, being relieved in October of that year by a French army, Hasburg planners were forced to take stock of the situation in North Italy and confront some uncomfortable truths. You see, the distraction in North Italy had cost Spain dear. The Dutch were only too keen to take advantage of the respite and had begun to turn the war against Spain from this point on. But there was worse news in the empire itself. Having utterly failed to heed the warnings of more experienced and qualified men, Emperor Ferdinand... Had rushed to support Spain in North Italy, donating soldiers to the campaign for Mantua, and ensuring that this bastion did fall in summer 1630. This might have seemed like a great act of joint Habsburg cooperation. By the time his soldiers had helped their Spanish and Savoyard allies capture the disease ridden super fortress, something else had also happened to the north. Gustavus Adolphus, in the summer of 1630, had landed an army in Pomerania thanks to his Mantuan adventure, the nearest defenders of the Emperor's interests were as far away as they could possibly be in North Italy. Worse than this for the Habsburgs, even with Mantua's fall, the Duke of Nevers retained the other super fortress of Cassal, which remained resolute even throughout a siege lasting several bitter months. It was largely thanks to Cassal's tenacious defence and the apparently impregnable position which the defenders found themselves in, that the Duke of Nevers managed to win the war even though he lost the battle for his Mantuan capital. The following year, in spring 1631, facing a Dutch resurgence and a Swedish storm, both branches of the Habsburg family agreed to recognise the Duke of Nevers as the rightful claimant to the region, and Madrid and Vienna both turned their attentions to more serious matters. As Gustavus Adolphus rampaged through Germany and the Dutch Republic began to undermine the very fabric of Spanish authority in the Low Countries, the Duchy of Mantua and its tenacious new Duke faded into the background, but the damage to the Habsburg position had clearly been done. In the case of Spain, the historian J. H. Eliot's judgment feels apt. Eliot noted, For Spain, the results were an unrelieved disaster. Its intervention in Mantua had antagonised European public opinion, driven the papacy into the arms of the French, strained Madrid's relations with Vienna almost to the breaking point, and wrecked Count Olivare's grand design for securing peace with the Dutch on better terms than those of 1609. Where this concerns us most of all, though, is in the demonstrated sophistication of these fortifications rather than the actual result of this conflict per se. Don't worry, we'll be looking more in the political implications of these campaigns later on in our podcast series. But it is possible to argue that the turning point of the Thirty Years' War hinged to a considerable extent on the successful defence of Casal, some unknown Italian fortress that pretty much nobody has ever heard of. The defenders at Cassal were the embodiment of a tenacious resistance against a larger foe done right, They maximised their advantages, which a sound defensive system accrued. This demonstrated the potential power which the besieged possessed, so long as he was properly prepared and provisioned, that is. As the historian Thomas F. Arnold concluded, Smaller powers, with less money, population and prestige than France, Spain and the other acknowledged great powers, could still use fortifications as the foundation of their state's defences. The 16th century fortifications of the Gonzaga in Casal, as sophisticated as any in Europe, proved capable of militarily supporting the independence of a small state, and diplomatically championing the pretensions of one of the most ambitious and active dynasties of the time. Thus, as surely as the unsuccessful siege of Re by the English had disastrous political consequences for them at home, the Duke of Never's successful use of the fortifications of Casal, to his advantage, preserved his independence, and it ensured that the lucrative duchies in the Po Valley did not fall to Spain and the Habsburg interest, or to Savoy. We are thus reminded that in the two sides of the siege, the attackers and the defenders faced certain risks, and by no means were guaranteed success. In both of these examples, that of the Isle of Re and Casal, it was the belligerent power, that is, the attacking army laying siege to a defending fortress, that suffered the most from its loss, but this outcome was far from consistent. Siege warfare increasingly swung to the advantage of the attacker later on in the century as Louis XIV's vaunted successes in chipping away at the fortifications of the Spanish Netherlands made plain. In the first half of the 17th century though, and particularly it seems in the late 1620s, much hinged upon the outcome of the siege and the defenders proved more than up to the task. So each of our case studies today told a story about struggle and want, and in each instance, underrated consequences would have followed had the besiegers been successful, a fact that places a further exclamation point on the importance of a successfully defended fortress. By so frustrating their enemies' plans, even the smallest of powers could alter the course of history, Thanks to the technical innovations within the military revolution, such powers now had this power and they would not relinquish it until further innovations bridged the gap, or should that be bridged the moat, between the capabilities of besieger and besieged. Next time we begin to wind down this 17th century warfare series, we wrap up what we've learned and investigate some more interesting instances of warfare in this eventful century, so I hope you'll join me for that. Until next time though, history friends, patrons, and PhD pals all, my name is Zach and this has been the 30 Years War miniseries on 17th Century Warfare, episode 13. Thanks so much for listening, supporting, and just generally being great, history friends. I'll be seeing you all soon.